Okay, so even though it's the pre-Christmas, Christmas service, uh, we're continuing in our series of the Word, because the Word series of the whole, you know, idea that this is a unified story that leads to Jesus, all of Scripture is, it works well as an Advent Christmas service. So today, we have gotten to the point of the story where we're going to start talking about King David and crowns and what the kingdom means, but also it's, it's kind of the last part before Jesus shows up. So I know it's the pre-Christmas Christmas service today, but uh, you'll have to come at 1030 next week to really, you know, learn about the cradle and when Jesus really arrives. So there's a bit of a cliffhanger today, but that's just the nature of it. Uh, and so, yes, we are continuing this in this series. And I just wanted to take a quick minute to sum up because it, you know, it's a series that's building on itself. So to get us all on the same page, here's what we've talked about so far. Uh, in the first week, we talked about how we are made in the image of God and those who are in the image of God are the kinds of people who trust God thoroughly and completely. This would have been Adam and Eve for a time until they didn't trust God fully and they seized blessing for themselves. God was no longer blessing them. They decided to take blessing on their own. And uh, we are said to be fulfilling our calling of being in God's image when we trust. And the Bible uses that job description. It uses an interesting word. It uses priests, where we're actually called priests when we are representing God to humanity because we're actually his idols, his images. And we also get to represent creation before God. We actually get to be the intermediaries. We get to work and keep the land. We get to be where we get to cultivate the, the, the world together. And so, actually, I drew a little, uh, this is us, and I drew, see the little purple thing on him? This is called an ephod, and an ephod is what priests would wear. It's a very crudely drawn ephod, but that's, that's, this, is us being, this is us being priests, okay? And a huge theme in all of scripture is that different characters, including you and I, all have this role of being priests, of, of bearing God's image, and, and have the task of reuniting creation and heaven again. Pretty neat. A priests are just like intermediaries. If you want a definition in your head of what a priest is, they're the go-betweens between God and humanity. That's what a priest is, just strictly speaking. So uh, unfortunately, we're not doing so great at that. Uh, and But thankfully, we learned, talked about this last week, God made a covenant to actually restore us to being priests. And the fact that there's a plan at all just shows how merciful he is. You know, when we left it behind, when we, when we choose to leave that behind, he didn't just, you know, abandon on the whole plan. He's like, oh, no, no, I made a covenant, and we're going to redeem this whole thing. It's very, very merciful. And we've talked a lot about God's mercy over the last couple weeks. Uh, when we talked about Abraham, we also learned, though, that God's still going to be just. And we've been talking about the idea that for God to be fully loving, he, yes, has to be merciful. He, yes, has to have a plan for redemption. That's great. But he also has to be just. And all the things that we've done and all the hell we've unleashed on the world actually has to be paid for. And so when we talked about Abraham, if you remember, we talked about how that covenant actually, there's, there's blood in that covenant now because there's just injustice done and somebody's got to pay. And we learned in the Abraham story about how God actually wants to be the person that pays, which is just crazy. So we're learning a lot about the character of God, right? We're learning that he's 100% mercy and we're learning that he's 100% just. And throughout the story of scripture, there's this, very slow unfolding of a clearer and clearer picture of those that tension being held. So 
I want to remind you of Exodus 19. You can put that up there. This was the Mosaic covenant we talked about last week. And it said, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, if you trust me, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is God speaking to Israel, saying, hey, if you obey me, if you trust me, I get to be in charge and you'll become priests again. We all get to wear figurative ephods and be the people that are advancing, you know, God's kingdom on earth. So apparently, you see in this language that although the whole earth is mine, treasured possession, we talked about how this is a very marital language. It's very, it's intimate. It's like a marriage between God and his people. And so apparently us returning that love like a bride, apparently us returning that love turns us into the priests that in that love and trust relationship, we become whole and fulfill our calling again. So you can see, you can see that this idea of the word being the truth is this very related idea. And we've been talking about how there's this Hebrew mind that understands what is most true as who said it. Who did all this? Who's all this for? It's a who question. So that's what the scripture is largely trying to do, is to tell us who. So where are we at in the story? Here we go. Uh, you can put the next slide up. After this Mosaic covenant, we had this problem, and I wrote this. You had the whole golden calf scenario happen, where they actually kind of cheated on God on the wedding day, in a sense. Like, that's, that's a very visceral idea. Moses is literally on the mountain getting instructions for how the marriage covenant is going to work, and they're building a golden calf. It's, it's bad. It's a really bad moment. And so God, again, in his mercy, continues with the plan. But instead of a kingdom of priests, they get a kingdom with priests. And there's, I know that's a subtle distinction, but it actually makes all the difference. You start to have to set up this Levitical thing, and you've got this Levitical priesthood that now has to do all these sacrifices. And not everybody's a priest. Not everybody has this calling, but they just get, they get to be a kingdom with some priests. And we're going to see how that kind of falls short as we talk about kings. So what happens is, after Moses dies, Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land. And things are going pretty well for a while. But then we have this period in, in biblical history called the time of the judges. So they show up in the promised land, and they got to figure out what to do. And it starts off well. They're conquering their enemies, and they gain a lot of territory. But over time, people actually become more and more depraved. And Israel wanders further and further from this being this treasured possession. They wander further and further from the heart of God. And over the course of the book of Judges, different leaders rise up to try to help wrangle this mess. And different authority figures appear, like Gideon would be one of them, or Samson would be one of them. They're bumpy characters. They're doing their best, but they're it's, it's kind of a story of like this. It goes well for a sec, and then it gets even like worse than it was before. And then a judge comes and tries and helps a little bit, and then it gets even worse. And it's this spiral down towards uh, probably the darkest time in, in Israel history, if you don't count exile, I guess. But the darkest time while they were a nation, it said every man did, did what was right in his own eyes. It was just absolute chaos. So what happens is the people cry out and go, you know what we need? We need a human king. All the other nations have kings. And they seem to fight all these battles. And we just have these judges that appear, and, but we don't have a, a kingdom. We should, we should make a kingdom. And so they recognize the right problem. 
they recognize that they've got some serious leadership issues. They don't have, they don't have a human leader, and they also aren't connected to God in an intimate way where he's their like internal, like they don't, God doesn't have their hearts. And so what they do is they recognize that they're not led well, but instead they cry out for a human king. Uh, so, the, you know, they're going, we have priests, that's great, but it's not working to actually lead us into freedom. We have the priests, they're, they're pulling off their sacrifices, and we all, you know, bring our goats to wherever, and we all do the sacrifices, and I mean, I guess we have a lot of mercy, but we're not actually changing. Our hearts are getting more and more wicked, See how that's so interesting? Even though they got this amazing system set up, the, the whole Levitical law, that they're probably following somewhat, they're not following it with their hearts. Like they're missing something about it and they're unled, okay? So this is kind of the backdrop for Israel becoming a kingdom. Now what I wanna do real quick so we can all relate, you can put this chart up. I wanna compare priests and kings, okay? And there's a big difference. And so here, we're gonna, let's, let's go through this. A priest... Some words that we can describe a priest would be relatable, close, they're servant-hearted, they're like doing the dirty work of making sure that people have access to God and it's messy work, all right? It's messy work. It's bloody, it's not glamorous. But it's a very important role. And their orientation is towards mercy. And it is the plan. This is the way God has mercy on his people. It's like, I've developed a system called the sacrificial system and we need priests to, to, to have it happen. And then you've got kings, which is kind of this new thing that starts to happen in Israel's history now. And their descriptive words could be like, they're distinct, they're separate, they're other, they're talented, they're capable, they're powerful. And they have a disposition towards justice of like, hey, let's not just do a bunch of wrong things and then make a bunch of sacrifices for it. What if we actually lived righteously like, what if we started to construct a society that didn't require so much atonement? Like, I'm glad we have the atonement system. I'm glad we're atoning for all our sins. But wouldn't it be great if we actually got into less trouble? Wouldn't it be great if we actually got to move forward and build something that was actually fruitful? And So do you see how there's a difference? We need both of them. We need both of them. So they got priests, they got the law, they got full access to mercy at this point in their history. But the people's hearts aren't subject to any authority and it's chaos. So I think we can relate to this. I, I like priestly kinds of help. Don't you guys like priestly help? I mean, unless your pride's really, really up. But most of us really like being forgiven and we like the mercy idea. But maybe you're like me and you've noticed that to actually be, to actually change, to actually change and not just feel bad, I have to follow someone other than myself. Like I actually have to be led out of it. Something new has to be built. I can't just keep going back and get forgiven again. My heart gets, it's kind of like the time of the judges. It gets darker and darker and darker. And then at some point, you gotta be led somewhere and realize that your heart's the problem. And that's a rub. You know, that's a rub. And a lot of us, I don't know, a lot of, I think even in Christianity, we bump up against that. And we go, hey, this forgiveness thing is fantastic. You mean Jesus atones for my sins? Amazing. Yeah, and then like three and a half months later, yeah, that kind of wears off and you realize that your heart isn't, it doesn't love something new yet. Like it doesn't have a new love. It's just kind of grateful, but it needs to start loving something bigger than itself. And that's a, that's called discipleship, I think. That's what we call it, is the process of that, of having a new love 
greater than yourself. So Israel's kind of going through this a little bit. We need priestly help because we need mercy, but we also need kingly help because we should actually live just and righteous lives and we need help doing that. So I don't know, which tugs on you more? Which one do you need more now? They both confront our pride, actually. But uh, that's just a little bit of a relatable moment because I know we're doing some deep dives here on Israel. But this is what's going on. So Israel was supposed to be a holy nation because they actually love and trusted God. Like God was actually supposed to be the king in the strict sense. He was supposed to have their ultimate affection and lead them out, but they kept you know, leaving him behind. So they go, let's have a human king. And at that time, they had a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel's going, are you sure you guys want a human king? Are you sure you want that? Because that guy's gonna take your sons and make them go to war. And he's gonna take, he's gonna take all your grain in times of famine. And he's gonna rule over you. And he's gonna be a human, which means he's messed up, which means it's gonna be bumpy. Are you guys sure you want a human king? Like, you already have God. You could just, you could just do what he says. <laughs> like, that's, that's Samuel's point, basically. Just do what God says. And they're like, no, we want someone to fight our battles, is actually the quote from 2 Samuel. We want someone to fight our battles for us. And you're like, oh. So Samuel goes, okay. And God actually says, all right, give it to him. God tells Samuel, okay, give him a human king. And what God's gonna do is what he's doing the whole time is he's gonna use the broken human person to give us another glimpse into his character, except this time, we're gonna get a glimpse into his authority. We're gonna get a glimpse into his kingliness. We're gonna get a glimpse into that. We've had a lot of glimpses into the priest thing. Now we're gonna have a glimpse into what a kingdom looks like. So God's gonna oblige the people as a request for a human king. And through David, we catch a glimpse of what rightly used authority can look like. Also what bad authority can look like because he's a human. But we also do get a great moment where he's like, oh, that's what a good king looks like. So you guys know the David and Goliath story. Uh, uh, there's a lot of different fun things that, you know, Bible studies you can do on David and Goliath. I think the number one thing that's going on is it's showing us, that, that story is showing us what a real king looks like. So Saul is the king, the first king that gets anointed and it doesn't go very well. And he's afraid in his tent and thinks it's about his own power and might. He's one of the bad kings that Samuel warned everybody about. And, uh, and then you've got David, who comes along and hears Goliath bad-mouthing Yahweh and goes, what? Are we going to let this guy talk? And he walks out there with, you know, five stones or whatever and a sling because he really trusts God. That's, that's the story. And then God says, that kid is a man after my own heart. Someone who trusts me fully, someone who knows what I'm capable of. And what we're seeing in the David and Goliath story and many other ones as David's becoming king is what a king really looks like. And it's mostly about, if not all, about trust beyond trust. And David's got some moments as he's become king where you're like, this guy trusts God. David and Goliath's the most famous one. So God's pretty stoked on David becoming king. And we have a really great moment where... Uh, uh, God makes a covenant with David, kind of like he made with Abraham, kind of like he made with Moses. He makes a different one with David. And it says this, 2 Samuel 7, 11, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David, to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so is he talking about Solomon, David's son? Yeah, kinda. But also, is he talking about an eternal kingdom that 
can't have anything to do with Solomon because Solomon's just a human. Yeah, there's an eternal heavenly thing going on here. There's a, there's a, your kingdom somehow will last forever. Fascinating, fascinating. So the he that we've been talking about, remember all the way back to week one, you know, the he from Genesis 3.14, the one who's gonna come and crush the lie, the one who's gonna come and, um, and be struck by it. And all of a sudden, we just found out that that Messiah is coming from a king. And you notice in the Bible, the whole narrative switches to kings. It's all we care about now. Before it was Abraham's family. We cared about Abraham's family, right? Because he's coming from that line. And now we just found out that it's coming from David's. And now the only thing the rest of the Old Testament cares about is kings. Because again, remember the whole thing. When is he coming? When is he coming? When is he coming? And so now all we care about is kings. So uh, we, we have this idea that, you know, we've, we're, we're looking for a priest. We know that. We're looking for a priest that's going to come one day. But now we know that we're also going to be looking for a king. And it has this dual role. It's not anime. That's a crown. Um, we have this dual role of a priest and a king that's, that's, that's on his way. Okay? So, fun moment. David, probably, this, might be, this might be David's crowning moment. David's crowning moment is he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant up into Jerusalem and he's dancing like crazy and it kind of foreshadows Jesus arriving in Jerusalem, but we don't have time for that today. But he's, he's headed up the Jerusalem, he's headed up the mountain dancing and it says he's, he's a king already and it says very subtly, it says he's wearing an ephod. You know, like a, this is one of the things you just breeze over, right? If you don't know what's going on. But David is doing a very controversial thing in that moment when he's bringing the God's presence back into Jerusalem. He's dressed like a priest because he knows that one day we need a king, yeah, but we also need a priest. And that's a very controversial thing for him to do because priests and kings aren't allowed to be the same person because the kings need their own priests because they're sinful. So you can't actually have a priest and a king be the same person. That's very, very important. So David kind of, whispers it with what he's wearing and he kind of gets away with it. I think God's stoked because it's this really cool Jesus foreshadow moment. But he's dressed as a priest king coming back into Jerusalem. Fascinating. So, unfortunately, they swing the pendulum a little bit. They, uh, they put all their hope in the kings. <laughs> Shoot. They put all their hope in them in earthly might. And unfortunately, even David falls victim to this. There's a story where he starts counting his troops. Instead of relying on God to defeat his enemies, he starts counting his troops and going, do I have enough? Do I have enough? Do I have enough? And God is really, really sad about that because it's evidence of David's mistrust. And David starts trusting himself and he starts building his own kingdom and trusting in his own kingliness, even David. And he gives that away to his kids and all the kings, you know, all the kings we're looking for, like, where is he coming? It does the same thing and spirals all the way down into exile, in exile in Babylon. When Adam did it, he was exiled. And now when Israel's doing it, they're exiled in Babylon. And uh, they just started ignoring the prophets and the priests. They started ignoring what made them distinct. They stopped listening to God and they put, all their, they put all their hope in the kings and they wound up in Babylon. So, it's Christmas. What does all this have to do with Christmas? We're looking for a Messiah that is both priest and king. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're scouring the pages for. And David let us down. But how are we gonna notice him? 
and I wanna do, I wanna do something today. I'm gonna do as fast as I can, but I wanna drill down on one prophetic psalm that David says, and he just nails it. And we're gonna have to get like super Jewish mind for a second, okay? We're gonna have to get really deep inside what a, a Jewish person is thinking in order to understand this. And that's actually probably the main challenge of reading scriptures. Remember from this from week one? It wasn't written to us. And it, it takes a lot of things for granted on a given page you're in. And so please stay with me for one sec because we're gonna do a little bit of work. We're gonna do a little bit of work. This is Psalm 110. It's probably the most important psalm when it comes to messianic prophecies. And you can put that up there. We're just gonna read two verses from it. It says this, buckle your seatbelts, we're gonna get there. The Lord says to my Lord, already confused, <clears throat> sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Skip into verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You didn't think we we're gonna talk about Melchizedek on the Christmas service, did you? But we're going there. We're gonna do it. It's gonna make sense to us. Here we go. First observation of this text, look at line one. The Lord says to my Lord. The Yahweh says to someone that David is referring to as his own Lord that's gonna come from his own line. That's confusing. How does that work? This is, so this is Yahweh speaking to someone that's David's son whom David is also calling his Lord. Interesting. And here's how the prophecy goes. Um, it says, uh, uh, apparently, this person is also going to be someone who sits at God's right hand eternally. So something about David's son is not a normal human. Something about David's son can apparently sit at God's right hand. Something about David's son is also his Lord. This deep Jewish prophetic literature Keep, keep, stay with me. Now, what is this second part? The, the Lord has sworn, I'm not to change his mind, you're, an, you're a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, in the order of. Priests, priests were all in the order of Levi. Levi's dad's name is Aaron. So you could just say they're all in the order of Aaron, but we call them Levites, okay? And what happened was, is that whole thing uh, we talked about this at camp, and Levi got such a bad rap because Levi doesn't get a good rap. He makes a lot of mistakes. I'm sorry, buddy. But here's what happens, is that way back, way back, like burning bush, Moses receiving instructions to go get Israel back from slavery in Egypt, like way back, burning bush moment. God is saying, Moses, I want you to go rescue the people. And he's going, no, thank you. And then God tries again. And Moses says, no, thank you. And he says, no, thank you five times. It's like, it's Moses' actually big mistrust moment, unfortunately, is the, is the burning bush moment. And so God goes, Kate, take, take Aaron. It's, it's a consolation to have Aaron go along with this whole plan. God just wanted to use Moses. He just wanted to use Moses. But he had to go, okay, fine, Aaron, we'll help you. And Aaron actually represents this, this, this mistrust that's seated there. 
has these long ripple effects. Aaron's the one that built the golden calf. Aaron's sons die on the first day the tabernacle is, is made because they do it wrong. And then the, the whole Levitical setup and system is seen as just this shadow. It's not quite it. And it's always falling short. It's this giant consolation. And the way the law is really referred in the, Old Te- in the New Testament is as this big, ah, it's not actually that powerful. It's not actually it. You're supposed to have a, we're supposed to love God. Like we're supposed to love him. That's the original design. This whole system is a giant consolation. So when this verse says, you're a priest in some other order, that says a lot. That's saying that whoever this priest is, because we need one, isn't from that line. It's not from that line, okay? Whose line is it in? Some guy named Melchizedek. Some guy. Melchizedek is fascinating because he shows up for three verses in Genesis 14 and then disappears again. And those three verses have crazy ramifications into understanding who Jesus is, if you can believe it. Melchizedek, he's so strange. These are the verses. This is what happens. Very obscure story packed with meaning. Put Genesis 14, 18 up there. This, all, all, this is what happens. Abraham has this cool battle. Like, we're all the way back to Abraham now. Abraham has this cool battle, and uh, this king comes out and blesses him. This is the whole Melchizedek story. Ready? We can read it in 10 seconds. Then Melchizedek, which translated means king of righteousness, by the way, that's what the name means. King of Salem, which is ancient Jerusalem, and Salem means peace, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest and king. He's a king and a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered you from your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And then he's gone, and we never hear about Melchizedek ever again. Until David, in Psalm 110, decides to say that the future king guy is in this dude's order. Psalm 110 is also the most quoted psalm by Jesus. This guy matters somehow, and this story is apparently really important. We're we're deep, I know we're deep. Stay with me. So, For David to compare this future king means this. I'm going to sum it up for you as best I can. You can put that next slide up. Here's what it means. For David to compare this future king means the implications are beyond Israel for this new king. This guy, this Melchizedek guy, is not Jewish. And apparently he's worshiping Yahweh somehow before Abraham knew who God was. There's just an untold story here we don't know. Like, something else is going on. Of course it is. The world is big. God's doing all kinds of stuff. We only really know about the Abraham thing, but apparently there's some guy named Melchizedek worshiping Yahweh really well, building an ancient Jerusalem that wasn't called Jerusalem yet. It was just called Salem. We don't know that story, but that story just kisses our story for a sec and has huge ramifications because apparently Abraham is submitting to a non-Jewish priest of whom he gives everything to. Interesting. So we've got implications beyond Israel. Secondly, this priesthood represents a superior priesthood in every way. Abraham gives this guy a tenth. This guy. 
So if, uh, uh, <laughs> if you've got a different order, that means you've got some different law in the background. If you've got a different order of priesthood, that means the whole law they're following, right? Like the whole law they're following is like secondary to whatever this guy would have wanted. Because Abraham worshiped him, like the patriarch, the guy, serves this dude, apparently. Okay? It's also an everlasting office. Almost done, stay with me. It's also an everlasting office. It's eternal because Melchizedek's priesthood is never ending because Abraham placed himself underneath this guy and uh, gave him a tenth of everything we had and it continually echoes and it continually is this background to the rest of Israel's story that Abraham actually serves some priest king and actually honored some priest king way back in the day. It's this backdrop. We don't think about it much, but it's this backdrop to everything. So, so what? Okay. Here's why David cares. If anyone ever showed up in that guy's order, that means we'd be bound to listen to him. If anyone ever showed up in the order of Melchizedek, that means we'd actually have to follow him entirely because Abraham did, and Abraham gave him his allegiance. It's, it's figurative. Jesus isn't actually Melchizedek's descendant literally, but this narrative flavors the whole story uh, that Abraham submitted to someone else that one time. So David is saying, the guy whose blessing we've always been underneath is gonna come back again. The guy whose blessing we've always been underneath is gonna come back. So thank you, for, thank you for doing Melchizedek with me. So David whispers this in Psalm 110, and then Jesus actually alludes to it. Jesus does this really cheeky thing with the Pharisees, and he goes, who do you think Psalm 110's about? Who do you think it's about? And he stumps the Pharisees. This is a fun story we don't have time for. But uh, then the author of Hebrews clicks for him. The author of Hebrew goes, oh, Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, like David said. And the Hebrew author goes off for a whole chapter. And I just want to read you some with this backdrop. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, Melchizedek remains a priest forever. Melchizedek didn't have a genealogy. Every other priest is like, you lived this long and then died then. And Melchizedek's the only one that didn't have a genealogy. <laughs> if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why is there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Super good news for us, by the way. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it's declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect because it was a consolation. And a better hope is introduced by which we, that's us now, by which we draw near to God. Next. Last one. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who have come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. 
one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens like a king. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. himself. Okay, maybe you understand Hebrews 7 a little better now, I'm hoping. It's just excerpts. Super big deal that there's a new priesthood. Super big deal because there's a new law that has everything to do with Jesus' sacrifice now, which is what draws us near to God. That's great news. Let me sum this up for you, and I wrote it out so that it's, you can put that slide up. Believers can rest knowing that Jesus is the perfect king who rules with infinite power and justice through his victory on the cross. Believers are also comforted knowing Jesus is the perfect priest who ministers with infinite mercy, never stops interceding on our behalf, and sympathizes with us in our weakness. Humanity has its rightful priest and king. Merry Christmas. <laughs> that's what, that's, we have our rightful priest and king. So, in conclusion, what are you being offered to, to celebrate this Christmas? You know, like, what are you, what are you really celebrating? It's the holidays, it's nice to have some time off. But what are we really actually celebrating? And, and, and do you think about this guy? Like, do you think about humanity's rightful intercessor on our behalf for eternity? Do you think about the arrival of the rightful Lord of your heart that leads you into freedom and life eternal? So, here's, here's I'll bring this home just in, in one way, and this is what struck me in preparation, is uh, the alternative is really sad and difficult. If it's not him, the alternative is hell, actually, and let me explain why. If we are the high priests and kings of our own lives, we will get whatever amount of mercy and justice we can drum up on our own by our own strength. Does that make sense? So he, why it's good news is that mercy and justice apparently comes from a new law. But if we don't want that one, all the mercy and justice you will be able to create in your own life will be a result of your own ability to do so by your own strength. You will have as much mercy as you can muster. You will have as much justice as you can muster slash inflict on other people. So here's how it works in my life, is that uh, when I try to have mercy on my own strength, when I try to live inside the law of Jonathan Mitchell's little kingdom, and I'm in charge, my mercy, I have a little, I have a little. You know, on a good day, I can have some mercy on those around me, but it's finite, and it's a lot smaller than I actually thought it was. It's super limited, like just one ounce. There's some, not much. And you know what happens is that thing runs out real quick, especially if you try to live an open life and actually be around other people. So you, you runs out, and then you get wearisome about this whole mercy game. And then I get cynical and resentful for the people around me who keep wanting more mercy again 
More forgiveness. Wow, okay, like I ran out a long time ago, but I'll dig deeper, I guess. And you get cynical. And then you get a sense of injustice. Don't we? This is what happens to me. When I go my own mercy, I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, cool, cool. Seriously? Can you know what? No. That's what happens. I get it. Nope. Done with the mercy game. I've run out. Actually ran out a long time ago. Coasting on fumes. I need justice now. I need justice now. And to deal with the injustice, which it is, people really do take advantage of us, if you haven't noticed. End of you. It's not all your fault. It's, there's a lot of pain and people do a lot of wrong things. Uh, in order to deal with the injustice, you kind of have a few options in your own kingdom. One is to fight. Some of us do that. Some of us just go, you know what? I come here. I just get, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna tear you down because I'm done with you. Less frequent in our culture. Here's what most of us do, and this is what I do. It's very clever. Just judge them. <laughs> just judge them. They're worse than you now. Just make them less. Oh, okay. You're one of the people that needs mercy. Oh, uh, okay. All right, all right. You're worse than me. I got you. You can, you can coast on that for quite a while. Just judge other people. You don't actually need to be merciful on them if you judge them at the same time. <laughs> Works like a charm. Because if they're the same as you, and if you see them equally before God as images, judgmentalism, it's a tough sell. But if you belittle them and make them seem smaller and not as good as you, you can, you can get away with that for a while. Do you think there's been some repercussions in the world, especially from the church, of judgmentalism like not working super well for us? But it's the main plan we use because fighting's dumb and it doesn't, doesn't look good. So we just judge everyone. And we're just building our own kingdom and we slap a church logo on it. Maybe it's one, I don't know. A church is actually one that's hoping for mercy and justice to come from a whole new place. A church isn't a bunch of people who want to be better people and <laughs> judge everybody else with a finite level of mercy. So this is why it matters. This is why it matters to us. And when we are left to have our own sense of mercy and our own sense of justice, I think we unleash hell on each other. And I think it's what Jesus has come to go, hey, I actually want to pay for all that too. I want to pay for all that injustice as well. And for you not understanding what we're doing right now. And we're going to pay for that too. So, I think Christmas represents the dawning of a, a new and better hope than ourselves for mercy and for justice. It's the dawning of love. It's the dawning of love incarnate. And he invites you to follow him and worship him and love him like he did on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. Would you love me? Would you obey me? Would you trust me? Because it's all taken care of. It's all done. I'm a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's eternal. It's done. It lasts forever. It changes everything. I want to read just to end. I want to read Isaiah 9. I read this at the beginning, but maybe we can read it with a little bit of a different background now. Isaiah 9, 2, 6 to 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Salem, 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's the hope (laughs) that we have. And you see the whole Old Testament, the whole, which we're just finished-ish, the whole Old Testament is going like, wow, could we have that? Wouldn't that be great if we had that? And the Old Testament closes in this loud thunk, and he's not there yet. He hasn't come yet. And they have 400 years of silence, and they're in Babylon, and it's tough. And you can feel, that's what I talked about earlier in the service today, you just feel this groaning. You know, in the pre-Christmas Christmas service, I think we get to feel this groaning of going, oh, we're in exile. Oh, we're in exile. And we need a new priest. We need a new kind of priest and a new kind of king. Not like the one that failed like Aaron's. Not like the one that failed like David's. But one that's eternal. And one that is good. And one that's really loving. One that's divine. And that's what we have. Worship team, can I invite you up? So I don't know how your heart feels today or whether Christmas feels joyful, but I think Christmas is joyful to the degree that we understand what's really going on. I don't know, if you like Christmas music, it's like, that's not a lot to get joyful about, especially for me. It's just rough for me these days. The jingles, I can't stand them. There's just not much to get happy about. Like, but I want joy. Like I want salvation. I want to be rescued. And that's worth singing about. And that's worth celebrating. And it's what's offered to you and it's what's offered to me. And it's, what, it's what's offered to all your friends that you know. So Father, we, we, we come before you as a group of people that are just grateful for Christmas. Thank you that you came as a king. Thank you that you came as a priest. And Lord, I thank you for making intercession for us. And Lord, I thank you for having the power to overthrow death and to overthrow alienation and to overthrow all that would separate us. And so Lord, I pray right now for a spirit of joy of our salvation to enter our hearts and go, he did come. He did come. And he lives in me. Father, remind us of the accessibility of you God, your character has been so on display for us in this series. It's immense, immense love, mercy and justice that we can't even fathom. But even though we can't understand it fully, God, we say we want it. Would would the pride in our hearts die right now and just say, Lord, we want you. We want you. Pray for joy to be in this place as we realize the gift of our salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen.